James 4, uh, 1 through 17, friendship with God. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll dissect it. Our Father in God, we ask that as we look at your word, you would give us insight and peace, discernment and grace, so that we may serve you and one another. Uh, we love and adore the law of liberty that you have given us, and we rejoice that you have called us a friend. Open our hearts as we open up your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, let's just pick it up in verses 1, 2, and 3. And uh, as is usual, I'll just make some comments uh, as we go, and then we'll kind of just bring it all together. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures, uh, some translations say cravings, it's hedonism, basically. It's the word, Greek word is where we get hedonism. Is not the source of your hedonism that wage war in your members. Uh, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You have envious, uh, excuse me, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's interesting how he transitions there. I'll explain that in a second. It's kind of, it seems clunky, but it's not. If, as we have learned in chapter 3, verse 18, you can look back up at that verse if you like, if we are unable to sow peace in order to reap an abundance of peace, we have to ask ourselves why that is. Why, if your life isn't marked by peace and harmony with others, you have to ask the question, why? What, what am I contributing to that? Um, if, if we reject the wisdom from above and embrace the wisdom from below, which we know is carnal and demonic, um, and completely rebellious, then we must be prepared, obviously, to deal with the consequences. And the consequences are hedonistic at the core of our being. So James is going to tell us again in this chapter about this great antithesis of history. And the antithesis, of course, is a friendship with God or a friendship with the world. Those two things cannot go together. They don't function together. You can't have one foot in one part and another foot in the other. This just doesn't work. And friendship with the world, which we know is marked by wisdom from below, comes about when our pleasures or our cravings, again, that Greek word there just is where we get the word hedonism, uh, when, that, when those things wage war. So all of us, we have desires all of the time that simply bump around and they cause a ruckus in each of us. We may have unrighteous desires or righteous desires, and sometimes we can have unrighteous desires and there can be a whole list of things that go with it. It's not necessarily one desire in your heart. It could be a multiple of things. Uh, you, you, for example, you could say something cruel about someone, which is what he's going to use in a minute, and in that moment, your desire is to hurt them and to malign them, and your desire is to make yourself look better, so on and so forth. So we all have desires that just rage inside of us all of the time what you you want <laughs> we can say it this way you want what you want through undisciplined conquest at any cost for your own end and selfish gain that's what unchecked desire does um untethered desire is it, that's what it does it wreaks havoc it lusts so it kills james says not literally he's speaking hyperbolically uh, to get what it wants. So this drive is part of what it makes 
may, uh, part of what it means for us to be human. It what's, it what's, it's something that God give, gave us. But when it comes to unrighteous, sinfully charged motives, it produces quarreling. It produces conflict. It produces disorderliness. Any conflict that you've had in any relationship at any time, that's where it stems from. It stems from desires that are not pure. They're not holy. Arguing with each other is fruitless. They don't get what they want, James says, because they don't ask God. They don't get what they want so they don't, because they don't ask God. They might state that they do pray. Well, I've asked God for this, that, and the other a million times. But their prayer is useless because their motives are malicious. Um, spending it on their own pleasures, he says. They don't want God's will. They don't want God's wisdom. They want God to do things their way, which we'll come back to momentarily with the businessman example at the end of the chapter. So God's goal, of course, we know, is not to give us the lusts and impulses of our hearts. Now, we know in Romans 1 that he does do that for those who are at odds with him. That's part of his wrath that's poured out. That's, I mean, that's our nation right now. We, God turns us over to the desires of our hearts, the lusts of our hearts. That's the judgment. It's not that those things lead to further judgment. That's part of the judgment. But for Christians, God is not going to let us turn, turn ourselves over to our lusts. He may to teach us a lesson, but those desires, of course, need to be in line with him. So he wants us to love what he loves. God wants us to desire what he desires. Um, we're not supposed to be Stoics. But we're also not supposed to be hedonists. We're Christians, which means that our pleasure and desires ought to be towards that which is good and pure and true. You know the psalm. You may have it in a cute painting on your wall somewhere, you know, uh, praying for God to give you the desires. Ask him and he'll give you the desires of of your heart. Well, those have to be pure desires. Um, he's not, he doesn't want to give you the desire to wreak havoc on your family or wreak havoc on a relationship or your job or something like that. Look at verse 4. In no uncertain terms, he says, you adulteresses. That's not very nice. <laughs> Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Do you not know this? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, friendship with the world thrives on threats and coercion and violence and power. That's what, that's what friendship with the world is. When, when we abandon God, when someone abandons God, he's committing adultery. That's why he says, you adulteresses. There is no neutrality. There is always antithesis. See, friendship with God means hostility towards the world. And friendship with the world means hostility towards God. Friendship, if you remember, he, called, um, he references Abraham, who was a friend of God, which is a concept in the Old Testament. Friendship, like Abraham, is how the Bible describes our covenant relationship with God. We are friends of God. Moses was a friend of God. Um, the world, James says, the world is simply how James describes this unruly system of evil, orchestrated by Satan, of course, and it, it's accomplished by man's recalcitrant lusts our evil desires. See, when the bride of Christ is not satisfied by her immaculate position, thanks to Christ's husbandry, she begins an affair with the world. That's the logic. When the bride of Christ is not satisfied with her immaculate position, thanks to Christ's husbandry, 
right? He's the husband, we're the bride, that sort of analogy. When we stop appreciating that, we inevitably then have, we commit adultery. We have an affair with the world. Verse 5 and 6. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us a greater grace. Therefore it says, and he quotes Proverbs 3, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, the spirit inside of us veers towards envy and jealousy. Left unchecked, that's where it goes. So God is jealous for those desires, and he does not tolerate divided allegiances. That's not how God functions. And I have to tell you, this is... um, there are some passages where you don't spend as much time because it's, you know, it's kind of self-explanatory. Then you dig in a little bit. I had to dig into this because, honestly, the text is very difficult because there's huge controversy. So basically, you're going to need to decide what you think. So it's on you. I am absolved of any responsibility at this point. Now, the King James says this, all right, because James quotes a scripture that we don't know what he's saying. Where is that in the Bible? We know from the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments, God was jealous um, and not like an impure jealousy, but a holy jealousy towards his people. But the King James says, Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwell, dwells in us lusteth to envy? Now, in other words, what the King James seems, seems to be saying is God gave us a spirit and apart from the grace of God, it's always going to steer off into envy and jealousy. But if you have a Bible in your lap and it's the NASB or the ESV, the NIV says this, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? In other words, like the NASB, God's the jealous one. So who in the world are we talking about? Who's jealous? Is God the one that's jealous? Or is the spirit in us jealous? Uh, you can, I don't know. <laughs> scholars are divided so it seems to mean that god is the jealous one and his in his jealousy he longs for us he gave us the spirit he longs for us because we're made in his image that sort of thing that seems to be that's what the nasb the esv and niv all say the kjv says something different that's all i'm going to say you have to go study for yourself Either way, I think we can say this. The point that James is obviously making is God is very much against the proud. And and for those who are humble, God gives an abundance of grace. For those of us who are striving towards humility, God gives grace upon grace. God is jealous for his creation to exalt him, but God is not jealous for that exaltation to be turned inward on itself. The foremost example being us who are made made in his image. God doesn't want your, the grace of God to be bent inward to where you say and boast, hey, look at me, how great I am. God is so gracious to me. He has elevated to me this great status. Look at me. That's, that's a false humility. And that does not compute, as Spock were to say. Verses 7 through 10. He gives a, a 10 different commands here. He says, submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will free, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's interesting, you know, people say, you know, God feels distant from me. And I had been in the past prone to say, well, God didn't move, you did. But I don't think that's right. I think God does move. I think there are seasons 
where, and I think you can prove this from the psalmists, lots of the psalms, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What does that presuppose? If you're absent, he's going to be absent. Mm -hmm. Not obviously in a theological totality sense. He's present everywhere. His spirit's within us. But I think there could be a spatial distance that messes with our head because we're supposed to draw near to him. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Again, not nice. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable or afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. See, John Calvin said that submission is more than obedience. In our days, submission seems to be just obedience. It's flat. It's flattened. Submission in a marriage, yada, yada. It's just strictly obedience. It's not. Calvin said it's, it, it involves humility. There's humility. There's an ethic of submission. See, if we're going to exhibit characteristics which are consistent with the friendship that God desires from us, then we're going to be people marked by constant repentance. Constant repentance. Um, instead of desiring unholy, profane things, we have to submit to God. All those, you can underline them sometime. It's, it's interesting. All these commands, submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be miserable, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning, right? Humble yourselves. Not a very encouraging passage. I mean, he takes like, you know, that's not good advice. Somebody says, you know, I'm really struggling with something. Well, you should probably mourn and be afflicted. You should weep. And maybe that's the best advice we could give someone. <laughs> See, approaching, approaching God requires a very particular disposition. You decrease, He increases. Clean hands, He says. That's your actions. Pure hearts. That's your inner motives. Purify, He says. Purify your hearts. He says, don't be double-minded. In other words, have right thoughts. Um, dejection and humility means that we have this subdued expression of sorrow and shame towards sin and, and wayward desires. Instead of turning your desires loose, he says, this is what you should do. Submit to God, cleanse your hands, clear, purify your hearts, right? Don't be double-minded. Spend some time mourning. I was thinking about this. I don't know when, I, this week I woke up and it, it just came to my mind. We like to circumvent mourning in our culture, but mourning is actually an expression of trust in the sovereignty of God. And that's a whole different sermon, but it's just, I was thinking about this passage when he, was, when he was saying such things. See, what James is calling for is for this inner humility before God, which will inevitably lead to practical obedience, obviously, to the law of God and the building up of church and society. Uh, and the beautiful promise of Scripture is that when we do this, God will exalt us. Right? Everybody wants to be exalted, but are you going to be exalted in the right way? You, that's the question. See, the humble heart will never be left in mourning. It will be brought forth from the outer chambers into the inner sanctum that is our friendship with God. God desires our repentance, but He desires our repentance in such a way that He wants to bring you near to Him. Not just keep you off. And, and I think that's where some unhealthy versions of Reformed theology leave you. Where you just should afflict yourself and you're this wicked sinner and that's all you should think about yourself 
Well, there may be seasons where you need to think in those terms, but there are also seasons when you need to walk with God in humility and grace and be joyful and firm with Him. Firm in Him, I should say. See, humility before God will always lead to the transformation of the world. Humility before God leads to the transformation of the world. But it starts with us. So what does humility look like? Verse 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another. There's another command. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. That's Isaiah 33, right? One lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? All right, let me explain that because it's a lot. Speaking against a brother or sister is the equivalent of saying bad things about him or her. Saying bad things about someone. Okay, and there's always a temptation to do this. Because people don't raise kids the way you raise kids. They don't do the things you do. You know, they, they're not as righteous as you are because you have a certain standard. You know, this pretentiousness that involves all, all of life. So you may be tempted to speak ill of somebody and say something bad. Can you believe she did this? Can you believe that person did that? Okay, that can't happen. It can't happen. Now, slander in our normal colloquial understanding implies something that's said about someone that's not true. But the Greek that's used here isn't, um, it doesn't suggest that. When we speak ill about a brother or sister, we are elevating ourselves above the law of God. That's the logic here. See, when we act like this towards a brother or sister, we're grabbing the nearest stick and we are bashing them in the head with it. That's what you're doing with your words. See, instead of treating someone lawfully, protecting the person, protecting their character, um, we act like the judge and then we have assumed the position of the lawgiver. See, speaking ill means breaking the law and that breaking of the law is, is basically cloaked, cloaked or disguised as law keeping. So here's the logic. Here's what James is saying. The brother you spoke against or the sister is made in the image of God. You have attempted in your words to deface that image. Okay? You're defacing that image. In defacing the image, you are now speaking ill of God, who is the only actual lawgiver. When you speak ill of God, what are you doing? You are asserting your own deity, and thus you judge the law and the God of the law. That's autonomy 101. You are stepping out of responsibility and covenant with God, asserting your authority over your brother, which means you're asserting your authority over God. James condemns that. See, the ultimate final judgment we know belongs to God. I think that's why Jesus gets after us and says, look, the, the standard you use is going to be used against you. That's why it's so easy, so easy to criticize someone. Why? Because we have a standard they didn't meet. And your standard may be good, it may be true, but you just blew it. <laughs> you just blew it. See, certainly God grants temporal use of judgment in the sense of discernment and assessment and um, anacrino in the Greek word. That's what Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2.15. 
Um, we're to judge all things. So there is a sense in which we are to do that. There's a sense in which the civil magistrate has to make a judgment on something, weighing the evidence, carefully examining, and so on and so forth. And all of us are called to that to, to an, in another sense. However, if the judgments aren't in terms of God's truth, then it becomes lawlessness. See, I'll say it this way. Casual flippancy, which is sort of redundant, but you get what I'm saying. Casual flippancy towards image bearers is actually quite damnable. The judgment you use will be used against you. Look at verses 13 and 15. 13, 14, 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. You've heard this passage before. And spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. We like prophets, Christendom, there's principles on profiting and using money and for the kingdom of God, but there's a problem. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. While this seems incredibly random, it's not. The example has already been intimated in the previous verses. Here's the connection. Someone whose desires are left unchecked is a person who has no regard for God's law or God's sovereignty. Okay? So when your desires are unchecked, this person obviously is the type of person who fails to hearken the message of Ecclesiastes, which I think I'm going to do that at the beginning of the new year, by the way. Um, that person fails to message the, or hear the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, which says that life is a vapor. But nevertheless, it's the kind of vapor that still belongs to the sovereignty of God. See, untempered desire will always lead will always be a life of rapaciousness or, or this constant grasping for more no matter what the cost is. Trying to push your brother or sisters down so that you can feel a sense of superiority, so that you can um, find yourself, you know, pastors and elders are notorious for this. Business, then, he uses the example of business, will suddenly become a, a means to building one's own kingdom. Doing one's own plans, one's own social standing, wanting people to come and look, look at me, look how great I am. Giving no regard to God's will and God's timing, the man whose desire, that's a person whose desire has overrun his heart. They're not going to care about the things of God. But to the contrary, God's will, God's plan, we know should be the foremost thing in our lives. See, the critique... The critique James levels here, and he uses this example of business, merchants who would go. And nowadays it's not like that. You know, husband goes to work, he comes back, or works from home, right? They're, these people left for a whole year to do business. But James says there's a problem in their presuppositions. They are laying plans out that God hasn't made. They're claiming an ability to control life, right? Asserting their own sovereignty. And they're boasting about the good deals that they'll make, which are completely out of their control. That's what unchecked desires can look like. That's love for the world. 
And then he goes to verses 16 and 17. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, self-confident Christians in general and self-confident merchants who travel to make a profit in particular, who know that humility and dependence on God are essential for Christian living, but don't do it, James says that's sin. They know the right thing. In other words, you as a Christian, you know, I'll just preach to the plumbers for a minute. It applies to everyone, but you're in the majority. Let's just be honest. You can go about your Monday tomorrow knowing in your head that the sovereignty of God is over your life, and it's true, but then not act like it. All of us can do that, no matter the job. You can Homeschooling moms, you can do the same thing. We can go about our business acting like, yeah, we know God's sovereign, but then treating it like that's not true. I'm doing this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. And James says, look, if you know the right thing and you don't do it, that's sin. In other words, your actions should be aligned with truth, the faith that you profess. So let's, let's apply this some more. Evil hearts beget evil people who beget evil societies and evil institutions. That's the logic. Evil desires in the hearts of people beget evil people who beget evil societies and cultures and institutions. The concern that James has is desires, are desires that run contrary to the law of God. Internal desires, that's really what the Greek is you know, telling us. Internal desires, they're flailing about in everyone, everywhere. Having, having the volition to, to think and feel and act, obviously that's part of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. But the wrong desires lead to wrong actions. Conflict inside of us stems from these desires that run up against other desires. That's why we say something, you know, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling conflicted. <laughs> why are you feeling conflicted? Because you have a multitude of desires that are bashing around and running into each other. That's why you feel conflicted. When we choose our hedonist impulse to do things our way with no regard to the ethical requirements of God's covenant law, we destroy ourselves and we destroy our relationships. So James says we ought to pray for godly desires. We ought to pray for godly desires. How often do you do that? I can't say that I do that every day. Usually our pattern for living is God, we assume this. We don't even pray this. We assume this. Give me the desires of my hearts, my heart. And they could be good things. Like give me a huge raise or, you know, open up this opportunity. Let me break a sales record or something. You know, we have these like uh, assumptions but do we pray for godly desires? Wake up every morning, God, I want godly desires today. Do we do that? So we're supposed to pray for that. Why? Because our fleshly deranged desires will always bend itself towards jealousy, worldliness, friendship with the world. And worldliness, we know that is a, that's a way to just say love, love of the world. Um, that's friendship with the world. And it's enmity towards God then, as a result. So we need to pray for godly desires. Listen to 1 John 5.14. It says this, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That is to say, the Lord gives you the desires of your heart so long as those desires are in line with His will and His plan and His providence. So he's, He doesn't grant us desires that come from a heart that's filled with self-asserting sovereignty. That's not the way it goes. He's concerned, James is, with our, our desire and what those desires do. And the doing, we know, is best expressed in our relationship with Christ and those around us and the world. That's how you judge a fruit, judge a tree by its fruit, right? When we're friends with the world, we are friends with the devil. That's his argument. We don't want to align ourselves with those who oppose King Jesus. We're not on the same team. That's wisdom from below. That's demonic, which we covered last week. See, what regeneration does in the life of a believer is both this unification with Christ and a subsequent divorce from the world. Okay, that's why you can't go on living the same, right? That's why, you know, the adage, when you became a Christian, you started to hate the things you loved and then you start to love the things you hate. That idea Regeneration gives you a unification with Christ, but in that unification, you also divorce yourself from the world. And I don't mean, you know, civil government and the application of God's law. We mean the system of evil that is rebellion against God. You're in Christ, you're not in the world. There is no one foot in, one foot out. It doesn't work that way. See, we have to make a clean break from worldly desires and the temptation of our current age. The temptation of our age is self-actualization. Self-actualization, it's a psychology term. It's used in various ways. But it's simply this process of self-discovery. Um, that's why in Canada they can't get their pronouns straight, right? <laughs> that's why we have all these issues plaguing our society. We have self-discovery. In our time, it simply means, the, it's the means by which men and women are basically allowed to indulge their desire, no matter the consequences. If I feel like being number X, not, X gender, I'm going to feel like that. I'm going to be that. Why? Because that's self-actualization. That's the spirit of the age right now. You, who are you to tell me that I can't um, wear a collar and pretend to be a dog? They're out there. It's insanity. See, instead of fulfilling one's calling in terms of Christ and God's dominion mandate, man in his rebellion will do whatever he sees, whatever's right in his own, own eyes. See, he will pursue his life by an agenda set only by himself. But this, as we saw last week, we know leads to chaos and disorderliness, which is what we have going on. Now, I don't want to critique the world here. That's easy. That's low-hanging fruit. James isn't concerned so much with that. He's writing to Christians in the church. So we need to get to that part of it. Relationships in the church. So that's what our focus should be. The warning here is about friendship with God versus friendship with the world. That's the antithesis. The emphasis is on the fact that friendship with the world, which is doing things that are not based on the ethics of God's word, but rather the subjectivism of man, it's always going to be built on accusations and unfounded judgmentalism. Okay, that's what it looks like. What we don't want is a Christianity that rejects the devil, but adopts all of his tactics, his accusatory tactics. That's the judging James is speaking of the brother. We don't want to, we don't want to resist the devil so that we can go about things our way. 
He says, submit to God, right? Draw near to God. Resist the devil. The devil will flee from you. But don't resist the devil so you can do your own thing. That's the problem. We are to resist the devil and draw near to God in our living and experience of desires so that we can be truly friends of God. That's the issue. Which means we have to fight against envy in the church. We have to fight against pride. We have to fight against selfish ambition. We have to fight against one-upmanship. See, the, the judging a brother that he speaks of is the accusatory tactic. And it happens all the time. Um, churches, I, I remember my, I, my pastor growing up, I was maybe only a couple months old when he came to our church. And he had been there all my life. And I remember him telling a story of a church in Ohio that literally split in two over the water heater. Because, and I don't know the details, I don't remember. And you, and you think, what happened there? Guess what? It's not the water heater that happened. <laughs> it's not the water heater that divided the church. It was this junk that James says not to let in your community. And they let it in. It was all there. It was bubbling. Not to use a pun in reference to water heaters that <laughs> boil water. So we don't want that in our, we don't want, we want to judge judgmentalism. We don't want, not, we don't want to do that to our brother. We want to accuse accusations, not accuse our brother. That's the, that's the logic. So don't take the law, fail to consider what it does with you first, and then start clubbing your neighbor with it. Okay? This, this is probably doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to just say it. The first person you should think about when you're confronted with the Bible or a sermon or an exhortation from a friend is you, not somebody else. That's the taking out, right, of the log in your eye because you're picking the speck in the other. That's the first person you should be thinking of. If you are tempted to think of somebody else right away, you're doing it wrong. See, the, the heart of the problem, as James sees it, is basically moralism in the church. It's moralism. Um, moralism can be defined as basically util utilizing a system of ethics. And it could be good ethics, like God's word, or it could be really bad ones, like the world's ethics, if you will, determined by man. But you're using it for the sake of self-righteousness. That's moralism. Um, this problem, I believe, has plagued the church big time. Um, when we reject things like empathy, which for whatever reason is a huge... In being a big discussion right now in some of our circles, as, as if empathy is a bad thing. When we reject empathy and real-time forbearance of one another, the vacuum we create is filled by moralism, by righteousness of man. See, that's not what friendship with God looks like at all. Instead, we are called to, what we're called to is very simple. We are called, James says, to receive the word with meekness, so you don't prove yourself to be a friend of the world. Receive the word with meekness. Anytime the word is preached, anytime you're reading it, it could be listened to a sermon from somebody else, anytime you are engaged in theological aggravation of your soul and your mind, whenever that's happening, receive it with meekness. Receive it with meekness. Uh, you know, the, the old adage, uh, you know, chew the, chew the meat, spit out the bones. 
that's, that's the same thing. Take what you can, assess yourself with what you can, and you know, don't, don't belittle someone by, hey, on social media, hey, I'm asking for a friend, <laughs> when you're really just being passive aggressive and posting something. See, we need to receive the, receive the word with meekness. Friends of the world do not commit themselves to humility. Friends of the world do not commit themselves to clean hands. Friends of the world do not purify their hearts. Friends of the world do not renew their minds. But friends of God do. Friends with the world constantly assert their own self-righteousness while condemning at every turn people who aren't just like them. Instead of receiving the word with humility and meekness of heart, they hear the word, but they do not become doers of the word, which James told us he's against in chapter 1. And so James, he unequivocally rejects this idea. It's ill-matched with the gospel. You can't hear the word only. You must be doers. You see, the humble business owner is the one who acknowledges the lordship of Christ in all of his transactions. He's not after his own desires. He's after the desires of his creator. The humble friend of God is considerate of his brother, creating space for differences of opinion, differences of thinking, differences of theology or philosophy, if you will. More like application than theology. Um, The humble Christian is the one who sees the unworthiness of his own sinful desires, and he strikes them dead in the courtroom of God, and he bows before the king, acknowledging his helplessness. That's friendship with God. The word of truth gives us all a level playing field. There's no condemnation in Christ. So don't heap that condemnation on your brother or sister in the Lord. There's no condemnation in Christ. So why would you give it to somebody else? Having a level playing field means that we have to judge rightly and righteously, not wrongly and flippantly. The gospel doesn't give you the right to moralization. It gives you the right to accuse your accusatory demeanor. That's what you should accuse. Next time you want to accuse your brother falsely, accuse your accusatory demeanor. Start there. Taunt your own pride. After all, the person who has been humbled by the gospel knows that he's really not all that humble anyway. You don't have a plaque on your wall that says Most Humble Award. It doesn't work that way. So ditch the moralism, embrace Christ. Well, how? Well, let's end here. Are you forgiven in Christ? If you are, then forgive. Were your debts completely wiped away, expunged from the courtroom of God? If that's true, then do the same for others. This is the Lord's Prayer, by the way. Forgive us our transgressions and we forgive others. Were your lusts crucified on the cross, then empathize with others to help them see the same thing. The gospel is absolutely powerful enough. And here's the key out of all of this, the cross of Christ. Christ's unjust condemnation on the cross by the Romans and the Jewish leaders led to our just condemnation, right? He didn't deserve it, but we did. That's what it led to. And, And in that, in his resurrection, we know that the justice of God is announced to all those who are in him. The justice of God is this, we're not guilty. So Christ on the cross by himself, that's, that's awful. Dying for sins that he didn't commit, that's unjust. That's the most unjust thing that's ever happened. But Christ on the cross with his elect, dying for their sins that they did commit, that's justice. That's mercy. That's what friendship with God looks like. It's a bleeding sacrifice and immeasurable glory. Let's pray.
Father, we give you the glory and the praise. We thank you for the exhortation that James gives us to remind us what friendship with you looks like. And I pray that we would cultivate that. That our desires would be left, um, would be checked. That we wouldn't uh, give ourselves over to desires that aren't of you. God, I pray that you would grant us godly desires, that you would give us righteous ambition uh, for your glory alone. God, not for our glory, not for the glory of our fellowship, but that your kingdom would advance through that. I pray that you would bless our community, God, as we seek to, to live life together in a way that honors you. We know and acknowledge it's difficult. It's difficult because all of us have desires raging inside of us, and sometimes they're not good. And we repent of those. And we ask for grace and mercy and help us to reflect your son, Jesus, who died to forgive us, who was raised to give us right standing and justice. And Father, we give you the glory because of it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.